So I'm preaching on 11 chapters of Scripture, and I promised Greg Walters I wouldn't preach as long this week. Not that he told me I shouldn't, just recounting what I said. So you ready to get at it? Okay, so if I told you that the wisest, smartest, most learned, most educated man in the Bible ended with a legacy of the rankest idolatry which involved the most putrid kind of female abuse and sexual deviance and even child sacrifice, you might say to me, Nick, that's a little counterintuitive. But in 1 Kings chapter 1 to chapter 11, the life of King Solomon, that is exactly the story trajectory. And if that statement's true, if Solomon was the smartest guy in the Bible, and you might even get from the passages, the smartest guy, period, and with all that wisdom, he ended up that foolish, we might have to consider the possibility that wisdom alone education alone, learning alone, mental cultivation alone, are not our saviors and will not make us good, truthful, noble, and beautiful in our lives. One of the most common spiritual pitfalls of the intellectual and the educated is for learning to become an end in itself. And when that happens, it becomes ugly and foolish when it is not connected to its proper source, and when it is not connected to its proper end. Its proper source is, well, God. God is the source of all true intellect, all true intellectualism, all true education, all true mental cultivation. All of it comes from the mind of God. It can never do better than mirroring the mind of God. And the end of our God-given intellect is always obedience to God and the enjoyment of God. And our intellectual and, and educational cultivation does best when it remains firmly planted and sandwiched between these two things. Its source in God and its focus on its true application, obedience to God and the enjoyment of God. And whenever it comes out of that sandwich, it's just too much peanut butter without any lemonade. It just isn't that good. Now, when the, the mind is not connected to its rightful source or end, tremendous wisdom, encyclopedic learning, become luxurious roads to the most heart-wrenching foolishness accompanied by the most stunning stubbornness. Some educated people will accept the importance of certain laws and practices for the common people, the simple-minded, unnuanced product of the public schools and talk radio programs. Scripture says for people like that, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The common, uneducated, unnuanced, ignorant people, they probably ought to go to church. You know, they probably ought to learn some of these things because it might be helpful to people like that. But it is often thought that we educated, nuanced folk have come, as Kant so boldly said, into enlightenment, 
which means we've come out of the supervision of things like laws and Bibles and worship services. And whatever else might be said about that view, chapters 1 Kings 1 to 11 stand as a biblical monument against that exact logic. They stand as a shining pillar dedicated to the proposition that the more learned we are, the more nuanced we become, the more interdisciplinary our pursuits, the more grounded we must be in the humbling realities of God's glory and our sinfulness and limitedness. And this practical grounding must be maintained through two very simple disciplines. The first is the continuous and wholehearted rejoicing in all the attributes of God, which we call in a word, worship. The educated, intellectual, nuanced, taught, cultivated person must engage in unadulterated, absolute, completely heart-given worship all the more than the uneducated common person who needs it. The common, broken, beaten down poor may need it for encouragement, but we need it for humility and grounding. The richer we are, the more educated we are, the more with it we are, the more we need worship, maybe for a different reason, but we need it just as much, and you could even argue more. And there is a direct relationship between how much we feel like we need to worship and how much we actually do need to worship, being the less you think you need it, the more you need to do it, which I guess is an inverse relationship, isn't it? The engineers will come and correct me at the end of the sermon. But for now, we need to realize that without that grounding, we will all eventually slide from good and pa- the good and passionate use of our intellect into the idolatry and self-sufficiency of the intellect. And the effect of this belief will always be either blinding or disappointing. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But in present terms for life in Madison, I would say that these, pas- this, these passages of Scripture point us to this, that modern educated Christians must be continually grounded in worship and Scripture. Now that may sound like you're going to get super cliche sermon, and maybe that's what you'll think it is when we're done. But let's just see. Now, I want to stop here for a second because I want to make it extremely clear that the life of Solomon does not point us to the idea that, oh, we should be ignorant and anti-intellectual. The idea of being simplistic, the idea that we don't need to know much about anything, that, that, you know, better to just love Jesus and not think about anything else is not the point of 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11. That's not the idea. When, when God says to Solomon, Solomon, just ask me for something. You get a free pass, ask me for whatever you want. And he says, I'm young, I'm in charge of this big nation, it's very humble, I need wisdom. You know, God, God doesn't say, well, okay. No, God says, great. Great request. You want to be discerning and, and logical and have wisdom and know and understand and be able to put 
all the data together, all the things you can learn together and how these things should be used and come up with Proverbs and summarize for people and give people axioms they can live by. You want to do that? That's a great request because most people ask for me to kill their enemies, give them more money, or give them a long life with no diseases. That's what most people ask for. And so the fact that you have asked me for wisdom, that is a great thing. So the the, the lesson to learn from Solomon's implosion is not that we need not be intellectual. That's not the point. The issue with Solomon is his request was fantastic, but his end was bad. So the question isn't, so we should not be— No, the question is, how, how are we to be intellectual? How are we to be educated? How are we to be mentally cultivated? How are we to be mentally nuanced? That's the goal. That's a good thing. So those of us who have been specifically called to that professionally or in our lives or in our station or in our socioeconomic class, how do we do that right? How do we engage in this kind of wisdom so that we don't end up like a guy who thinks marrying a thousand women is a good idea? So let me try to summarize this 25 or so pages of Scripture— down to two things. But before that, I want to quickly— because not everybody here is very familiar with the story of Solomon, okay? And so I want to just take a couple minutes here and try to briefly summarize these 11 chapters so that people who don't go, oh yeah, the story of Solomon, read that last week. Those, you know, if you're there, I don't, I don't lose you right here, okay? So let's roll through the story of Solomon. So fire hydrant time, so get, let's get ready. Okay, here's a summary of the story of Solomon. Solomon gets chosen king after King David, so he becomes the third king of Israel, okay? There's some controversy around it because one of his, one of his brothers tries to be king, and then his daddy makes him king, and then there's some struggle, and then he kills his brother because he tried to get it back, and it's a little nasty. And then he spends about three chapters solidifying his reign, and at sort of the end of that, he makes this hugely extravagant um, offering of worship at a high place called, um, called Gibeon. Now, one of the things you need to know is the, the Israelites were not supposed to sacrifice at high places. But if you've ever been to Israel, it's very, it's very striking how there's land that's lower than others. They're high places. And if you think of God as up in the sky, the idea of going up on top of a hill is very catchy. And so the Israelites worship God, instead of worshiping him in front of the ark like they were supposed to, the seal and sign of his covenant— and promised to them, they went and worshipped him up near the sky. That made more sense to them for some reason. And so, they, so Solomon does this, and when he does it, God condescends, even though this isn't the proper way to do it, he still sees this, this heart, and he comes in and he appears to Solomon, and he says, ask me for something. And he says, I want wisdom, because I am young and foolish and need it. And God says, awesome. And he gives them wisdom. And the result of that is for the next couple of chapters, his reign goes great. In fact, if you've only heard one thing about the life of Solomon, you've probably heard the story about him judging between two women with, this, with the kid, right? There's two prostitutes come to him. One kid's dead, one kid's alive. And the prostitute says, uh, one lady says, um, this woman, she accidentally smothered her son in the night and she came to my bed and switched babies with me. So that she would have the living son, and I would have the dead son. And they argue back and forth, and Solomon goes, well, it's one way to settle this. Just chop that living baby in half and give half to each mama, and we'll work this right out. And one lady says, darn right, let's do it that way. The other one's like, no, 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 let her have her. And Solomon said, second mama's the right mama. Off you go. And, and people go, wisdom. 
That's sweet. And so there's that sort of thing. And, and so Solomon's reign goes well. So this is what it says in chapter 4, 30 to 34. Sorry. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt, which had a wisdom tradition more than a thousand years old already by this point. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda. Now that's wise. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon was extraordinarily well-known, and rightfully so, for his intellect, which wasn't just intellect related to things theological or philosophical or even political. His—the expanse of his encyclopedic knowledge spread over everything. His mind was so blessed with ability. The, the second major section is that Solomon then builds the first great temple to God. David had made provisions for it. Solomon was tasked to do it, and he did it. He built the temple, and that is actually the majority of the chapters of his life. Chapters 5, 6, most of 7, and 8 are all Solomon building, furnishing, and dedicating the temple. It says in 1 Kings 9, the Lord said to him, so he ends in chapter 8 with praying that God would inhabit the temple so that when the people prayed, to God and directing their hearts towards the temple that he would hear, he would listen, he would put his name there. And he says this, The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you will walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I commanded you commanded and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And so he built this temple, and it was pretty amazing. That was the layout. Okay, now after the issue of the temple, there's three things that Solomon ends up being known for, besides being known for the temple, right? Solomon's mines, Solomon's stables, and Solomon's wives. It says in Scripture that Solomon, his yearly take of gold, after he built a fleet of ships in the Red Sea to go in back and forth between mines and places in Africa that he'd found, was 42 metric tons. Not including the tributes from Arab kings that was, would come in yearly. It says that in the reign of Solomon— well, I think I have, might have a thought. No, I don't. Um, that silver was kind of like rocks in the city of Jerusalem. You might find some worth for it elsewhere, but in the city of Jerusalem, it's just not really worth anything because there was so much gold. There was so much gold that it says that every, every utensil in his palace and in his summer home was gold. There was so much gold that he built 500 shields 
and he put seven pounds of gold into each one so that they could be displayed every once in a while at his summer home in Lebanon. It's kind of a lot of gold. The second thing is Solomon's stables. It says in 1 Kings 10, 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. One of the places that's actually been excavated and they actually found Solomon's stables as they were built is this place in Megiddo. And he actually had five or six different cities that he had dispatched like horse legions too, so that no matter where he could get attacked from, he could swing not only however long it took for the men to get there, he could swing cavalry into the area as fast as possible. So this number of horses had a direct relationship to his military power. And then lastly, you've got Solomon's wives. It said he had 700 wives of noble birth and then 300 concubines, i.e. wives of non-noble birth. And a lot of people, times people will say, well, now, you got to understand here that a lot of these, um, these marriages were really a treaties with other countries. So he'd marry, marry a daughter of this king, and, you know, then they'd have a good relationship as long as the marriage lasted. And so the, you know, these are treaties. Okay. Okay. But let me just say this. By the time we get to this marriage, he's already married Pharaoh's daughter. He's already married Pharaoh's daughter. And Egypt is by far the most powerful country at this time. So he's already got the big daddy in his back pocket. He doesn't really need any more treaty wives. Okay? Now, if you spread out about 500 miles, you're going to get about a maximum of maybe 60 countries. What is he, marrying 10 daughters from each one? I mean, honestly. I mean, the fact is he wanted more wives. That's the fact. Otherwise, he wouldn't have 300 of non-noble birth. I mean, the man liked women. And he didn't—I mean, there's no way he married all his same— I mean, he might have married, like, I don't know, 15 women a year for, like, 40 years. I mean, you have to realize that his harem probably spread over 40 years of women. He, I mean, every year he got the new model coming off the line. <laughs> but what it says the result of that was— was when he married all these foreign women, all these women brought with them their foreign gods and relatively devout ideas about the fact that they should worship them. And so it says this in chapter 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as his, the heart of David his father had been. Then he dies. And the specific idols that are mentioned in that passage when you read it are the, the goddess Ashtoreth and then Moloch and Chemosh. And the reason why these probably are mentioned instead of the others is these are the most detestable ones. God both detested, didn't like them because they weren't real gods, but also God had a second qualm with these because of the method of worship. The worship of Ashtara um, was extremely sexually deviant. Um, and then the worship of Chemosh and Moloch both included child sacrifices. And later on, the child sacrifice in relationship to these gods really gets rolling. We, there's no way—we don't really know how much it gets rolling in Solomon's lifetime. But it ends up being one of the major reasons God says, I'm judging my people and you're going off to Babylon. Because they really get rolling with it. So how does—how does that happen? You get like 
eight chapters of going well, and then all of a sudden you, you come down here, there's lots of wives, and then boom, the wives turn his heart away, and he's worshiping idols, and that's it. God raises up enemies, splits the kingdom. What happened? And here's the difficulty with reading narrative passages of the Bible, like Kings. There aren't a lot of markers in there. There aren't a lot of, well, let me just tell you what this means. No, it just tells the story. So how do you figure out what's going down? So let me try to give you two observations that emerge from this, this group. The first is, so let me say it in the point for us, and then I'll move back to Solomon. That modern educated Christians need to continually be grounded in worship. Sorry, I'm skipping a lot of this stuff. Modern educated Christians need to continually be grounded. Now, I'm not saying that non-educated Christians don't need to be grounded in worship. I, I'm just saying that a lot of modern educated Christians kind of think they're above wholehearted, reveling, full given over to worship. We think that just because we're well-cultivated, well-cultivated people don't act crazy, and so we don't act like the blue-collar people. They can be charismatics and we'll be something else and wear button-down shirts. And what I'm saying is, you don't need to necessarily yell out of it, but when you worship, you need to give yourself to it. Now, if you want to give yourself to it like a Scandinavian, that's okay. But I'm saying, when you do it, you've got to do it. You've got to give your—whatever it looks like for you to give your heart to it, then do it. And if you don't know what that looks like, just set up a video camera of yourself when there's a, a football game on, or when the Badgers are playing, or, you know, when your wife tells you she got you something for hunting. I don't know what it is for you, but whenever that's about to happen, and you're about to be expressive, set up a video camera, and then watch it. And that's what it would look like for you to give yourself fully to worship. Okay? Whatever nationality your background is. Now, one of the reasons I say this you say, well, wait a second, wait a second. What are you going to accuse Solomon? He doesn't worship? I mean, the man built the greatest temple ever. That's true. He did. He did. But here's some other points about that. When it gets to that passage in 1 Kings, it says, And Solomon completed the building of the temple, which took him seven years. Now, Solomon spent 13 years building his palace. That's how chapter 7 ends and chapter 8 starts. Solomon spent seven years building the temple and 13 years building his own palace. Now that in and of itself isn't conclusive. It's just you kind of go, hmm. Okay, that's interesting. But then if you move on from there, it says in 1 Kings 9.25 that Solomon sacrificed three times a year and therefore fulfilled his temple obligations. That's all it says about Solomon's participation in the temple for his entire lifetime. That's all it says. There's nothing else said. Once he does the, all the extravagant worshiping of dedicating the new temple, once that's done, the only thing it ever says about his worship after that, besides his worshiping of idols, is that three times a year he went to church. And he fulfilled his obligations. Now that, that also isn't entirely conclusive. But one of the things that, that also struck me a little bit is how much the text of 1 Kings focuses on how amazing Solomon's throne was. There was nothing like it anywhere in the ancient world. His throne was nicer than the Holy of Holies. 
Now, the Holy of Holies was nice. Don't get me wrong. Big angels with hammered gold. It was nice. And, you know, and God was, was, was encouraged to enjoy the 1,400 square feet that Solomon built for him while he lived in his 11,000. And, and, okay, that's still all circumstantial. And all there is is circumstantial evidence, but it's a narrative passage. That's how you build evidence. One of the other things that stands out is then when it talks about the publishing record of Solomon. Remember what it said? That he published 4,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. And how many of those songs actually made it into the Psalter of worship songs? None that I know of. But his warrior shepherd daddy managed to write more than 70. Now you tell me, what was Solomon writing songs about? Besides having sex with one of his new wives. That one made it into the Bible, right? I mean, one of his songs about romance, which actually is very wise and is, in terms of wisdom, related very well to proper theology and worship. It's rightly Christian scripture. No question. But it's primarily about the dynamics of absolute romantic love on lots of different levels. There's no Psalms. So he was fantastic at thinking about God and writing songs about something, probably not all of them about sex, but there are no—why why no worship songs? I mean, it was—the problem was not his gifting. The problem was not that he didn't write any good songs. The song we have in the Bible is an amazing song. Song of Solomon is great poetry, great content, gr I mean, great imagery, great evocative language. It's a great song. The his, his deficiency there was not gifting, but there's no psalms. He worshiped three times a year. He ended up worshiping idols. You tell me how disciplined he was in giving himself to wholehearted worship like his daddy did. And so here's, my, here's, here's what I would say to you. What about you? How much do you recognize the possible acidic properties of great learning, its tendency towards becoming an end in itself, towards generating pride, and ultimately ending in either despair or blindness. And therefore, your desperate need for it to be continually grounded in its great source, which is God, particularly as manifest in Christ and through revelation, to be exuberantly worshipped, to constantly be re-grounding your heart on the foundation of where all of this comfort comes from. And one of, the, one of the last pieces of evidence that tells me this didn't happen with Solomon is because guess how Ecclesiastes starts? Right? Everything's meaningless. Then what's the first thing he talks about? Wisdom is meaningless. And his argument for why it's meaningless is that it doesn't ultimately ground. Like, it, you can learn a lot from it, and you can do a lot with it, but it ultimately—like, if you keep trying to get under it, it ultimately doesn't ground. It doesn't have 
It's not a foundation. It's a building. And so when you try to get under it, there has to be something else. And if you try to ground yourself in the learning itself, you end up in despair because you realize it's built on nothing if it's not built on something like God. A revealing, truthful, logical, reasonable, and expressing of those things God. And wisdom in and of itself ultimately saps significance, though when you first start the learning process, you feel filled with significance. We have to be a people who give ourselves to worshiping in public and in private. We should be a people getting up in the morning, thanking God that we're alive, thanking God that our needs work, thanking God that he has put before us a path to walk, that he's given us revelation, that whatever gifts he's put in our life, we need to be a thanking, praising people. We need to sit down at dinner and get all of our family around us and hold hands and find things to thank God for. We need to play the Jesus is better than game with our kids at dinner. And if we do that, and if we ground all of our learning, and when we learn, we need to not just say, oh, that's really cool. We need to say, oh, that's really cool, God. Isn't it amazing what this reveals about God? Isn't it amazing how this integrates with this scripture and how these pieces of learning fit together in these places of tension? There is something hidden there that I could still find because I know there will be resolution either now or in eternity. And in the mind of God, this makes sense. And I'm trying to manage all this data and I can't. And isn't it amazing that in God's mind, there is no tension. He manages all the data and knows all the right conclusions. And I'm glad that I'm resting on him and in his revelation direction about how I should live because otherwise I might be messed up. And we can only do, we cannot do that with more learning. The solution is not more learning. The solution is the grounding of learning in the discipline and practice of worship so that our hearts love the right things and the right loves can come together with all the discipline of learning and all the giftings of our intellect. Secondly, I had a slide for that, apparently. The second thing is modern educated Christians need to be continually grounded in Scripture. We need to be continually grounded in Scripture. If you are a mental kind of person, you are not going to be satisfied with coming into worship and singing the line, Jesus loves me, isn't that fantastic, 427 times. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. In order for a seasoned mind to work, what happens is you are going to need to connect things that are true about God to the reveling part of your heart. And so what's going to be necessary for continued and sustained worship is you're going to have to see more about God's sovereignty, more about the way God saves, more about the way God merges his moral seriousness with his great mercy, more about the way Jesus embodies all the different attributes of God, how the gospel, as it says in Ephesians 3, is the multifaceted glories of God, so that when you look at the gospel from different angles, there's a new glory and a different glory and a new glory and a greater thing, so that there is a constant set 
of intellectual explosions meant to penetrate your heart, to expand worship. And guess where they're almost all hidden? In Scripture. And it becomes the leaping place for which, where we connect all of our interdisciplinary knowledge that comes from the scientific method and observation and intuition with the reality of God, it, its integrating place is from what Scripture teaches us and lays out for us and the parameters it sets for us. And so it, it requires this connection to Scripture for us to be able to progressively increase in our enjoyment of God. And that is more true the more intellectual we are. Because we, ha we, we build this discipline of pressing deeper. Okay, that's, that's okay, but what's, what's beneath that? Okay, well— your, your heart, you've, you've worked to structure your mind to look for more and to become bored with the simple aphorism. And so if you do that in the lab, you have structured your mind to force yourself to do that with the Bible. Otherwise, you'll wonder why work is interesting if you're a scientist or something, and the Bible isn't. Well, maybe you're not reading the Bible— with the intent to mine, like you're going into your lab. Maybe you don't believe that under some ore, there is gold. And one example of this is David, because you see, David wrote 70 Psalms of worship, but the longest Psalm he wrote was the celebration of God through the celebration of God's laws and decrees and word. That's Psalm 119. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Oh, how I love your law. When was the last time you, that was your word of praise? God, all of your restrictive commandments that tell me what I can and cannot do, I love. <sighs> How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And he wasn't talking about the simple proposition that Jesus loves you, which is sweet. He was talking about the law. He's talking about the Torah. The book, the books that you think, if I'm, I can't get to sleep right now, maybe I should read 12 chapters of Leviticus. Th those passages— he was like, oh, sweeter than honey. <clears throat> now you might say, no, oh, wait a second here now. Surely Solomon studied scripture. I mean, he was what? He knew everything. Surely he studied the Bible. Okay, maybe he did. But the writer of 1 Kings actually gives us a clue about this whole gig. And this is why. When you read the, the end of Solomon's life, which is the end of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11, the three things he's famous for come up, right? The mines, the women, and the horses. And you know, I kind of always wondered why the horses? You know, like the gold, got that. The women, I understand that. But the horses? And then you go, oh, well, it's just, it's an emblem of strength, right? So he's rich, he's strong, and he's desirable. I don't know. But there's, a, there's this one place where in, in um, Deuteronomy 17 where it explicitly says what a king is supposed to do 
when a king becomes king of Israel. And it explicitly says he's to do four things. And what, he, and what that means is he's not to do three things, and he is to do one thing. The three things he is explicitly commanded not to do in this passage is to obtain a great number of horses for himself, and he is not to send the people back to Egypt to get them. Two, he is not to take many wives for himself, and another passage forbids him to take foreign wives. And the third is, he's not to accumulate a large amount of gold for himself. Those are the only three things the passage explicitly says. Now, you read the la that last bit of Solomon's life, and for some reason, the writer of 1 Kings thought to include these three things in a different order, interestingly enough. But he says, you know, Solomon had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses all from Egypt. Now, you're going to have to decide if that is, counts as a great number or not. <laughs> Let me just tell you, it's a great number. Okay? He's not to take many wives. Well, what counts as many wives? Yeah, I suppose that's a little on the eye of the beholder. I'm going to go that a thousand would be many. I'm going to say whatever that number is, a thousand, that would classify as many. Okay? And in terms of gold, I don't know what would count as accumulating a lot of gold. I mean, I don't really know what counts for, with, with that. But I would think 42 annual tons, so that silver has no value in the city. I would say that could classify as a lot of gold. It, it, it could. And, and, here, and here's, here's what it says. He says he's not supposed to do these things because he's supposed to be a brother to the people. All these things separate him from the rest of the Israelites. They're all his brothers. He's not better than them. He just gets anointed by God to be king with the task of protecting the people and trying to provide for them and to be the king, to lead them into battle. So he's not supposed to get all this. He's not supposed to suck it all away from the people, right? And then the, the fourth thing, the thing it says he's supposed to do, is this. Verses 18 and 20 in Deuteronomy 17, it says this. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to his right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel. And you see, so, so God's promise to Solomon, all it was, was an application of what he'd already promised in the law. His promise to David was just an application of what he had already promised in the law. It's already in the Bible. He'd already said it. He'd already said, if you're a king, the one thing I require you to do is to take your own pen and your own hand and your own parchment and to sit down for however many weeks it takes and copy word for word for yourself a copy of the law that you are to keep with you all the time and read from every day so that you will not forget it. So that you will stay grounded in who the Lord your God is, what his commandments are, and so all of your in intellect can't pull you away from that. It must be integrated into that. 
the one commandment he was given was to stay grounded in Scripture. And there's no, there is a lot told to us about what Solomon writes, but there is nothing said to us about what Solomon copies. He was a very original person, it seems. Okay. Now, now here's the last question that we can end with, and that is, what if I'm already Solomon? Right? You know, I mean, if you're, if you're doing the good Christian thing and reading your Bible and going to church and your life is pretty biblically together, then, then I'm saying, listen, you know, stick with that. Give your heart to worship. Give yourself to the Scriptures. But, but the question is, what if, if you say, okay, what if I'm not Solomon in chapter 4? What if I'm Solomon in chapter 11? I mean, I don't have a thousand wives, but I mean, I've walked away from the decrees and commands of the Lord. I don't give myself to worship. I have this very strong intellectual pride. I'm, I have not used my intellect to glorify God. I have used it to glorify myself. I have sought my joy in my, in my learning in and of itself instead of how it points me to God. I have not seen God as its great source in obedience to God and enjoyment of God as its great end. That's who I am. I am that guy. So is the only thing I can do to try harder, to try to worship more, to read the Bible more. And, and my answer is, we'll, we'll, we'll need to get to that. We will need to get to that. But first and foremost, when Solomon was an old man, he wrote about this in Ecclesiastes. And he just simply said the first step really is, is faith is turning back to God wholeheartedly. That's what he says it is. He says in Ecclesiastes 12:1, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, the days of trouble come, and the years approach when, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. He, he's saying as early as possible, repent of this. This is true of all sin, but not least intellectual sin. He said, as early as po- don't make peace with this, don't live with this, don't carry on with this. Whatever you need to do to break that pride chain wrapped, that's wrapped around and camouflaged by your intellectualism so that your intellect can't run really free with Christ, do not make peace with that. Remember God as early as possible. And so you have to ask the question then, okay, well, but how? I mean— how do you worship and revel in a God you've practically despised? How do you remember the God you've essentially forgotten? How do you come back to the God that you know is morally serious? How do you approach the one that sees every ounce of your intellectual idolatry and every bit of it that's dripping in your mind? How do you hope that the one that so right, is so rightfully disappointed in the selfishness and foolish use of your mental faculties would choose to renew them and teach us to think rightly about him? On what grounds— Will we come back? Will we remember our Creator? And the answer, Solomon absolutely knew. And he said it when he prayed to dedicate the temple. He said, in this very long prayer, chapter 8 is the longest chapter, if I remember properly, of the 11. He says this, When they, meaning the people of God, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy— 
who takes them captive to his own land far away, far away or near. I.e., this is the worst case scenario of the eight, the eight or so that he gives. I don't remember the exact number, but he gives a number of different scenarios of God putting judgment on his people. This is the worst one. He says in verse 47, And if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their hearts and soul in the land of their enemies who look to the— who took them captive, and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayers and their plea, and uphold their cause, and forgive your people you have, who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you, and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. For they are your people, and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt and out of the iron-smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea, and you to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. And the thing that was put in that temple was the ark, which was the symbol of God's covenant promise with his people. Now, Solomon's amazing temple didn't last. It got torn down. And then there was another temple built, and that one got torn down. Eventually, God built his own temple. And God answered, this is how he would relate to his temple. I have heard the prayer and plea you've made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Be there. And then sometime later, Jesus said, it says in John 2, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And the Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. This is the second temple, the temple of Herod. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken about was his body. There is a living temple there is a place where God's promise to forgive absolutely resides. No matter how far into captivity in any sin you have been taken, there is a place where if you turn your heart wholeheartedly, God's promise with his people to forgive still resides. It still lives in that Ark of the Covenant within God's temple, which is this risen Jesus. The temple that we destroyed, that God rebuilt in three days, that is raised to heaven and lives forever. There is one absolute clear and central grounding for the departure of your captivity. There is one and only one absolutely promised ground for your return. There is a clear and present way for your right standing. And that is to turn your heart wholeheartedly in repentance and in pleading and in desire and in hope towards the risen temple, the place where God has put his name, his eyes, and his promise, the risen Jesus. And you can do that in the blink of an eye. You can do that, that this very second. You can do that again right now. And that one work has the power through God's Spirit to break all kinds of chains of sin, from the most visceral sins of our bodies and desires to the most cultivated sin of our aberrant intellects. And when God renews that, 
we can come again with renewed strength to do battle against these temptations which rise again and again by continually giving ourselves wholeheartedly to the worship of the risen temple and by constantly connecting our minds and hearts around him through meditation and connection to Scripture. Because our modern, educated Christians have to continually be grounded in worship in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as some friends may feel a conviction that they have, they have been Solomon. I know I have had seasons of that creeping in so much. I pray that everyone here, to whatever extent their intellect may have allowed for this creeping syndrome to be disconnected from its source and its true end, that, that we would take a minute right now and repent towards the living temple. Father, I do not want any part of an unbridled, foolish intellect, no matter how cultivated or nuanced it might be. Let my mind, let our minds be brought together with you, our great source, in obedience and enjoyment of you, our great end. And let us use our minds and our intellect and our wisdom to all of their greatest capacities. But let them be the kind of intellects that constantly you remember your commands, decrees, and laws, all of your direction, all of your loving instruction, and you as our great source. And let that bring about an ever-deepening multifaceted joy in worship so that we have ever an ever-increasing number of things to worship about you and that our hearts would be able to thank our intellects for multiplying the possibilities for adoring you. And help us to be a people that though we love to read widely and know widely and think widely, continually and in a disciplined way continually return to the scriptures so that we would not forget them. And let us all, Father, do it all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.